0: 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, Verse nine. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Well, listen. If you think about your own home, and you, you, many of you probably have scripture passages. On your walls or on your refrigerator, little magnets or or something like that. You cross stitch or calligraphy or some framed, you know, kind of Christian art from the bookstore or something like that. Or you think about the the, the scripture graphics that you often see on social media and it's people streams and you know, verse of the Bible with some pretty scenery in the background, kind of like what we have. Uh, up here, and so you, you have that kind of thing: calm colors, pretty backgrounds, you know, rolling green pastures, and little mountain streams, and a and a peaceful garden, that kind of thing. And so the the verses that you typically see, I mean, I can just think of some that I've seen on walls, and maybe some that have been in our own house. Joshua 24:15. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Uh, Philippians 4:13. We see that you see this on social media. It says, if I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord Psalm forty six ten be still and know that I am God uh, and on and on fruit of the spirit the Lord's prayer Psalm twenty three and there are there are many others that you often see hanging on walls and and in, and with pretty backgrounds they're, 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 those are beautiful verses they're encouraging verses they are they are worthy of of wall art. <laughs> They, are, they, are, they, re, they receive approving, approving looks from guests in our homes. They, re, they get likes on Facebook when we post those kinds of verses with those kinds of sceneries. But then, there are those unframable scriptures. <laughs> they are equally inspired by God. They are just as loaded with truth. But they aren't necessarily the kinds of words that you want to put on your wall for everyone to see. Or on your social media feed. Second Peter 2 is an unframable passage of scripture. I can't say with certainty. But I, I would guess that there is probably not a single person in the world. Who has a verse from Second Peter 2 hanging on their wall. Now if some of you do. I want to meet you. And then I'm going to unlike you. Unfriend you on social media. Because that's a little weird. No I'm just kidding. The only verse you, I, I really ever hear mentioned, and it's kind of in, in, in passing and in sarcasm, is the very last verse. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Well, that's very cheerful. And that's what you want to put over your fireplace mantle. Um, no, this is, a, this is an unframable passage. God, but listen, God shoots very straight in His Word. He doesn't fake, He doesn't flatter us. He, if, he, if He gives the por- a portrait of a person's life in Scripture, he, he tells it like it is. He gives us the warts and the scars and the oozing scabs, everything. He tells us as it is. You think of Noah, who's, who's naked in this drunken sleep. And this is what Scripture shows us. Abraham, two times he let men walk off with his wife. Jacob's a pathological liar. He's a deceiver. David concealed his adultery with murder. In the New Testament, the author of this letter, Peter, is, is there's this blatant hypocrisy, even racism, I would say. And so God's Word, it presents people as they are. Not the way we wish they would have been. We, we get the, the bad and the ugly along with whatever good there may be in their lives. Listen, as ugly as some of these portraits and episodes are in Scripture... The graphic details regarding false teachers here in Second Peter 2, they are even less sparing. We're given this vivid picture of human depravity. Not in kind of broad brush strokes, but in graphic detail. We only read part of the chapter, but if you were with us last week, or if you've read this chapter over the week, this is, this is very graphic. This passage, it's not pleasant. It's not happy. It's, it's not the kind of text you would ever want to preach three days after Thanksgiving and before Advent season. Oh, oops. Um, no, th- this is where we are in God's problems. But th- this, this tone here, it's not, the scene is not like a warm, cozy, you know, living room and the fire, crackling in the fireplace like many of you have kind of, maybe that's been your experience this week. This is more like a dark, cold, dirty, foul-smelling back alley. That's the tone of this text. Why? why? Why does he say these things? Why does he give so much detail? Why does he delve so deeply into, into depravity here in chapter 2? You just remember why Peter's writing this letter. If you've been with us, if you've not, then, then let, me, let me just kind of give you some context here. He's writing to encourage believers to grow in grace to to have growth and stability in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ that's his purpose in writing this letter but this growing grace is not formed it's not it's not fostered or lived out in in a vacuum it's it's to be present in the midst of very hostile conditions and 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 so Peter sets this very positive picture of a life of growing grace in chapter 1 against this very dark backdrop of a grace opposition to grace in chapter 2. So in chapter 1 we have these fruitful believers who are deeply rooted in the grace of Jesus Christ. That's, that's us as believers. And then in chapter 2 you have these unbelievers and these false teachers who reject Christ. And who, who reject His grace and they lead others astray and try attempt to. And so, you know, the big idea here in chapter 2, as we looked at it last time, two weeks ago, and, and now again today, is that opponents of grace, they're, they're, they are always a clear and present danger to the church. And Peter, again, as he's wanting these believers to be stabilized in the grace of Christ, he's, he's giving them this warning. He's he's letting them know this is going to be reality for you. And when I say opponents of grace, he's going to talk about false teachers. But I I think that can especially if you've been around the church, it just kind of has kind of is a little flat because we just maybe we have some caricature in our minds of false teachers. But when I say opponents of grace, because that really cuts to the the the, the essence of this letter, that these these are teachers who undercut the gospel of grace. They deny the master who bought them they they blaspheme the gospel, the way of truth, they distort grace and turn it into license to sin they They, they push Christ to the edges to the margins of of the church and they they denied christ 's future return this is in this context what we 've been singing about this morning, they deny that and they 're undermining therefore the hope that that we as believers are to fully set our set on that grace that 's yet to be revealed in christ 's return and so so this is what I say when they're opponents of grace. Well, last time, we're, we're kind of in the middle of a sermon. Thomas, thank you, brother, for last week. What a, what a tremendous op- opportunity to just revel in the grace that is ours in Christ. We needed to come up for air last week, and we did it, and you gave it to us. We had this infusion of, of gospel air into the midst of chapter 2. And Well, we're going to get back into chapter 2, though, here. And, and so last week, we, we, we're kind of covering the whole section. We covered five points said these things. One, opponents of grace are inventive. This is just by way of review. They, rather than upholding and proclaiming God's revealed truth in the Scriptures, they, 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 they make up their own ideas and teachings concerning Jesus Christ. So they're not, they're not committed to the prophetic word that is made more sure that Peter talked about in chapter 1 they they make up their thoughts about Jesus. Second, opponents of grace, they grow like kudzu in God's field, just meaning they're pervasive, they're they're invasive. They 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 spread and they they infiltrate. Third, opponents of grace try to up try and operate under the radar. That they they're inconspicuous. They they're sneaky. They they try to rem, they, they remain concealed oftentimes. That's how they're allowed to be among believers and in churches without Without them being uh, sniffed out so quickly. Fourth, opponents of grace they ride the wave of popularity. They they lead many people astray. They they can be very popular. And then lastly, opponents of grace dis- deliver a destructive message. They they see again in verse three. They they are um, in their in their in their greed they exploit with false words. Excuse me. Back in verse one, they secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master. Who who bought them? And so we're gonna pick right off right up where we left off last time. Sixth statement: We're just giving a, this profiling these profiling statements about these false teachers, and and so we ourselves can be on guard as well. Sixth: Opponents of grace are driven by dark motives. They're driven by dark motives. These are not just good people who make some innocent mistakes and in saying a few wrong wrong things about Jesus. That's not that's not what this Chapters about Peter's not talking about well-meaning Christians, well-meaning Christian pastors and teachers and authors who who have a few theological blind spots, and so they they say some very wrong things that are unorthodox. That that's common in the church, but that's not what uh, he's talking about here. And so we we see if you look at the end of the letter real quick in Second Peter chapter three. He's going to speak again to these believers, genuine believers. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. So all that He's warned them of, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So it's possible for believers to lose their stability and to be carried away into error. But that's not not who He's addressing in chapter 2. These are... These are unbelievers, these are, these are unbelieving teachers who have infiltrated the church, they're spreading heresy, uh, false teaching concerning Jesus Christ, and they're driven by these twisted, corrupt, wicked, mixed motives. Now by that, I don't mean they're necessarily consciously uh, attempting and, and desiring to destroy people's faith. I just mean simply... That they're driven by something other than the glory of God and the advance of Christ's Gospel and the good of His church. There are other motives that are driving them. They are driven by just natural, base, selfish, sinful desires, even if they don't realize it. This is what's driving them. And so in Peter's day, this is what he tells us in this chapter, these false teachers are driven by greed. They're driven by greed. They, they weren't there to give. They were there to get. They weren't in these churches to serve them. They were there to be served by them. And so look at verse 3. We're just kind of again, kind of taking the chapters as a, as a whole here. In verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Now look down to verse 14. They, Peter says, they have hearts trained in greed. And so greed as, as a corrupt motive for ministry, quote, it's not anything new. This is a very old motivation for false prophets and false teachers. You look in the Old Testament, false prophets are often bribed. Even in the New Testament, you have the, the first one being Simon the magician in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. He tries to buy a franchise in the apostolic ministry, He's like, man, there's some money to be made here. This is a lucrative business, and I want in. And, and again, you see this greed is driving him, this false, te- false prophet. But Peter goes on, he, he goes on in verses 15 and 16 to show that these, these false teachers, driven by this lust for more, lust for money, lust for like, influence, they, they, they come from a long line of those who are seeking personal gain and, and, and in their claim to, quote, speak for God. And so look at verse fifteen. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, that's that's a very quick summary, and you may be screen. Well, that sounds very bizarre, and it is bizarre. It's in Numbers chapter twenty-two to twenty-four, and then thirty-one. But but, but just to summarize. Balaam was 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 a prophet who sold out his integrity for for riches from the king of Moab, Balak, and and so the king hired Balaam to pronounce a curse on the Israelites as they were passing through the land, and uh, passing through the his, through his territory. But but the, the emphasis that Peter's making is he was driven by this greed. He 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 was driven because he loved gain. He loved gain. But the but the Lord miraculously rebukes him through the mouth of this donkey. It's a great story. But but here's Balaam. Here's the parallel. Balaam's this intelligent, eloquent, influential uh, a prophet, but, but he used his natural giftedness to fulfill his own lust for more rather than to faithfully represent God's truth. He was a false prophet. And in a similar way, the false teachers in Peter's day, they're, they're leading people away from God's truth for personal gain. For motives are dark. False teachers are no different today. The modern day Balaams, they have their price. They they, they may appear in it for the ministry, but it doesn't take long to realize they're in it for something else. They're They're looking for something for themselves. Listen, our heresy alarms should sound whenever we see an overwhelming emphasis on on money by teachers and preachers and authors. When their whole theology rep, you know, presents these, quote, miraculous ways of acquiring financial blessing, I mean, like sirens should scream in our, in our minds. If the application of virtually every message is, is to sow a financial seed or to reap some material harvest, then run. This is, and this is, this is very present. If their constant appeal is, to, is, is has to do with self uh, with, with satisfying, self serving desires, then we need to be we need to be aware. So there is this greed. Back then, in the Old Testament, in Peter's day, and it's still today. It's a motive. Where is the connection between greed and grace opposition? We think about what fuels greed it, because. It's because Christ and His grace are not their all-sufficiency. Not satisfied in Him alone. They, they try to use the church, then use the church to prop up their own status, to, to pad their own pockets, to, to, to forward their own agenda, to gain influence for themselves. This kinds of thing. Teachers who don't see, see Jesus as the all-sufficient One will inevitably begin to see people as a means to an end. And that's what was happening then and that still happens today. If we don't know the love of Christ, we won't love His people. We will use people. But if we know the love of Christ, we are freed up then to sacrificially serve the church that Jesus died for. Not perfectly. We all have and serve from mixed motives. But but there's this freedom then because our sufficiency is in Christ. To, to, to love people. Seventh. Seventh kind of profiling statement of these false teachers in chapter 2 is that opponents of grace are role models of depravity. Role models of depravity. And, and again, we stopped in verse 10, but if you keep on reading, and we're going to hit some of these verses, you just see this dark picture that's presented by Peter of these guys. They, they take the lead in immorality. Very explicitly in some ways, and sort of secretly in other ways, but, but they lead others to follow them in their sin. Look in verse two: many will follow their sensuality. Sensuality is this very graphic, vivid Greek word for this blatant immorality, and so they're 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 all unashamed of their immorality, and they and others will follow them. Verse ten. They indulge in the lust of defiling passion they're they're hungry for lust, they do whatever it takes to satisfy their lusts, and they 're arrogant they 're full of themselves look at halfway through verse ten, but right where we stop, bold and willful they they do not tremble when they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now this is not an easy verse to interpret here, and there's different thoughts but it's not immediately obvious, obvious who Peter has in mind when he references these, quote, glorious ones. Most likely, most agree, he's talking about angelic beings, like fallen angelic beings, demons. And, and so these false teachers, they're, they're very self-confident. They're very bold and willful, the text says. And they're quite blasé about angelic powers. They, they they pounded their chest. They 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 dismiss these the the power of these celestial beings. They blaspheme them. They 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 put see themselves as so strong, so powerful in and of themselves. In verse eleven, whereas whereas angels, the holy ones, they though greater in might and power, they do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So he's saying, even the angels of heaven won't, won't talk like these false teachers about those other dark powers. Even, even though they might have just cause for doing so, they, they, don't, they don't make those boasts. So their wickedness is seen in this proud, brash, audacious slander of those who are in higher rank and power than they are. And that, the same could be said of how they viewed the apostles how they viewed the Old Testament scriptures, how they viewed Jesus Himself—they were above others. Nothing was sacred to them. Nothing and no one was worthy of their respect and their honor. And they were. This is this is the picture Peter paints of them. I mean, you hear you hear this a version of this even today. The kind of modern-day false teachers, I would say, often engage in this kind of bold talk about. Powers of darkness and speaking to demons directly and binding binding them binding satan but but even the archangel michael he he doesn't try to take on Satan like this, tackle him on his own, despite his incredible wisdom and power unmatched compared to us, he calls on God to rebuke satan there 's this close Parallel text. We haven't talked a lot about this, but if you read through the book of Jude, it, it is a very close parallel to the book of Second Peter. I mean, there are word-for-word word parallels. And but in Jude, verse nine, he, he speaks of Michael. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous, blasphemous judgment on Satan in the context, but he said, "The Lord rebuke you." And so again, I, I think that's a helpful passage to kind of give us some understanding of this meaning here. But but not so with these false teachers. There's nobody that they see that's above them. Verse 12. Continue on. But these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, Peter's not holding back here, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. So the only authority, quote, that governs their words and their behavior and their thoughts is that of their own animal urges. That's what Peter's saying. It's not the authority of God. It's not the authority of Jesus Christ, His Son. It's not the authority of His Word. It's not the authority of His apostles. It's just their own instincts. Now, it's hard hardly surprising that people who are who are who, whose lives are so controlled by these these base instincts are also driven by a desire for pleasure. And so, in particular, they're controlled by this lust for sexual gratification and and for money. Verse thirteen. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Down in verse 18, "For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. So you just again, you get this picture. These are, as I said, role models of, of just depravity. Now, it's easy to read this and think of the most extreme uh, forms of sensuality that were present in their day. And there were some forms that we can't even conceive of being present in our culture. We, we We can study that Roman world and scratch our heads and think, how in the world were people in these churches tempted by these things? I mean, temple prostitution and just the mixing of religion and... And and uh, sexual immorality and all of these things and and this erotic culture and so we 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 think how is that possible? Listen, th- this was just normal in their day. <laughs> this was this was normal. The, these believers were saved out of this pagan culture. It wasn't a far stretch for them to be tempted to pur- to pursue that again, those sensual passions like they did before. I would just say. Let's not look at our own context as being so high and moral. Other generations would, and other cultures today do, look at our context and our culture and they think, how could they? How is that possible? That even people in the church would be tempted and drawn away in those things. What what seems very kind of normal to us, a normal level of depravity and immorality in our own culture, because we live in it, it can seem very extreme to other believers in other generations and in other cultures. And so the sins of the world, this is where the sins of the world often become the sins of the church. So the, the, these even true believers were tempted to, to be drawn into these things and these false teachers are trying to take take others after them and, it's, and and those we're going to see those who are weak and unstable especially and so Peter's alerting us to something that's closer to home for us than maybe we think it's easy to think oh, that that's not possible you know if i if i saw somebody coming in and there was this sensuality and they they would never be able to lead me astray in that oh really because what he's saying is, is simply it, the, the bigger point is that there will be teachers who bypass the mind and they go straight to the senses. That's what they were doing, essentially. And that's what happens today, all the time. Bypass the mind, go to the senses. It's more about feeling good than finding truth. Don't forget that Peter has already stressed this vital link in chapter 1 between being established in the truth and being stable in our faith. So, so this, is, this is critical. but, the, but those, and, and those who engage in this immorality, they're not going to be content to just go it alone. They, they, they will lead, they will entice others to do the same. That's what the language is here. Eighth statement. Three more. Opponents of grace promise what they cannot provide. They they make these extravagant claims that they can't support. They make promises that they can't keep. Verse seventeen: These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. Those are very vivid word pictures. I love these these images here. They, They they appear to have something to offer of substance that will that's refreshing and that will help me. But when you get close, you realize they don't have anything at all. They're spiritually they're a spiritually barren mirage. It's like a dry oasis in in a desert, or a cloud that looks like it it has rain in it, but it just blows blows over, blows past. And these false teachers—they promise to quench thirst, but they can't deliver. They never deliver. And I was thinking of California and the drought-stricken areas and the fire-ravaged areas right now, and 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 it's not it's not unheard of for. You can see storm clouds form, and it looks like this front's coming through. But in those areas of intense heat, sometimes you'll get this, these dry lightning, and you'll get wind, you'll get lightning, you'll get everything that the storm has except rain. And it not only does it not only doesn't help, but it it makes things worse. It you know lights up new fires, and that's kind of that's the kind of the image I have here. But they, it, it, these these false teachers are supposedly offering something refreshing something helpful, something life-giving, but they cannot make good on that promise. They're waterless springs. Verse 19, you see the same point again. Verse 19, they promise freedom, they promise Him freedom, but, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. And so they're emphatic about this, quote, liberty that they offer, but they actually just drag others into their own enslavement. to Corruption. They love to flaunt their supposed freedom. And to, to them, freedom means just the liberty to do whatever they want. And to sin as much as they want. Unrestrained by truth. Unafraid of repercussions in this life or in the life to come. Just do what you want. So the image, the image of these people, these false teachers, it's like they're chained up, they're bound... They're not free, and in that state of bondage, they're calling out to others, come be free like we are. Peter says, this is ridiculous. They promise what they cannot provide. They they oppose grace by distorting it, by making it license to sin. Romans 6, 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Ninth, two more statements. Opponents of grace prey on the weak and unstable. They prey on the weak and unstable. They're like carnivorous predators. They, 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 they hunt the, for the naive and the weak and the, the unstable victims to devour. Just thinking of those National Geographic shows that no, no doubt you've watched, or maybe you don't like watching those shows um, but these these lions of Africa, these predatorial animals in different parts of the world, and 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 they they're you know just picture this lion stalking this herd of wildebeest, and what are he doing? He's picking off the young ones, the slow ones, the injured ones, the weak ones. That's that's what they tend to go for. They all taste the same, so who cares? You know, if they've got a broken leg or something like that, so it, it, don't save your energy. Well, this is what these false teachers were doing in Peter's day. They're they're trained predators. Their their hearts are trained in this. The text says they they know how to jerk on heartstrings. They know how to appeal to the senses. They know how to sound sincere in doing so. And so, verse fourteen, they they entice unsteady souls. Verse eighteen, they they entice those who are barely escaping from those who live who live in error. And so they're, they're praying especially on, on, on unsteady and, uh, 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 folks and, and I would say recent converts. I think most understand that's what is meaning, meant here by those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. These are recent converts or, or immature Christians. This is who they're going after. Those who are especially open and trusting towards those who come as a quote Bible teacher. And so these new believers in these churches are coming out of this godless, Christless knowledge and living, and now they have this new, good, loving King in Jesus. And these opponents are trying to entice them back to their former life, to their former allegiance. The, the stronger, the more established believers, they, 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 would have, they would have been able to sniff it out quicker. But these newer believers, they're, they're not very established in the faith yet. And they become easy targets. It's not that they're going to be ultimately drawn away. Christ holds us fast. But this is who they're trying to, as, as we'll see in 3.17 later, this is try, who who's most likely to be unsteady. And so Peter's saying, watch out. Be because they will go after them first. I mean, Jesus described this... These false teachers in this in this in this way. Matthew seven fifteen, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. They're ravenous. They, and they're looking for easy prey, looking for the stragglers. Looking for the young, looking for those who are weak, those who are not very sure footed. This is why Peter wants us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. He wants us to have a greater Grace-rooted stability, sure-footedness in our identity in Christ, and so. But this is—they prey on the weak and the unstable. This no wonder Peter goes on in verse fourteen to, to call these false teachers accursed children." Cursed children—that's a strong statement. Last statement, and this is the big one, and we're going to do all we can to finish it in time. This could be a sermon in itself because it's so dominant in this, in this chapter. It said, Opponents of grace are playing with fire and they will get burned. They're playing with fire and they will get burned. The, this is the key truth in this chapter. It, destruction is really probably the key word in this chapter. It's repeated over and over. Their teaching is destructive. They teach destructive heresies in verse 1. And those who propagate those false teachings will face destruction. They will be destroyed. They're, verse 3, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. He says, they're, they're not getting away with this. Christ will have the last word. And Peter goes on in verses 4 and following there to, to speak of the, the consequences, uh, the immediate ones, and ultimately the final long-term consequences of false teaching. There, there are these eternal effects on the deceivers. Peter leaves us, he leaves his readers with no doubt, no doubt about what God will ultimately do to those who distort His truth, the Gospel. He gives us these three clear examples from from defining moments in God's past dealings with with His enemies in Old Testament times. See, we can't get bogged down in the details here. If we try to... There are a lot of questions and interpretive issues in, 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 in these verses here, in verses 4 and following, and I, 4 to 10. And I don't, wanna, I don't want us to get too tied, tangled up in that. And It's not because these are unimportant. Every word matters. Everything matters. But I don't want us to miss the big point. That's very clear. The key is verse 9. This is the summary statement in this section here. And you cannot see, any, see it any clearer. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the, uh, the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That's his point. And everything he says prior to that, he's is supporting that. He's making the case for it. He's giving these examples, very consolidated examples from, from Old Testament history. And he's, but he's supporting that statement. And any interpretation that doesn't support that statement is a false interpretation. It's a bad interpretation. I would say. So, don't get, don't get chasing down some rabbit trail. And, and let's stay on the main road here. He gives us these three examples. And one in verse 4, the first one, is of these rebel angels. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That's his first example. He stops mid-sentence. So this is likely referring to the rebellion of Lucifer and those, those uh, others uh, angelic beings who, who followed him in, this, in, in that rebellion and that revolt in heaven. And so if these privileged, powerful, majestic creatures, angelic creatures, if they were not spared from judgment, how much less those who, who are in that line and following them in their deception, even if it comes in the name of, quote, ministry. That's his point. He gives another example, verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought (coughs) a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And we're going to come back to the but preserve Noah part, which is most of this verse. But for now, we just see that the very judgment that was threatened on the world by God is the very judgment that was enacted by God. Because what? Because they refused to listen to God's message that he gave through Noah. God makes no concessions. Even though the vast majority of people in the world, everybody except Noah and his family, rejected him, were in opposition to him, They, they, they were destroyed. If there's ever any doubt that God sees, knows, cares about wickedness, injustice, corruption, sin... I mean, just look at the flood for proof of this. You when know, we think of the flood, we we think we've, we we kind of turn it into this cute little story about animals in a boat and all that kind of stuff. And we have we decorate baby nurseries with this. This is a little creepy to me, but um, death and dying, okay, if that's what puts your kid to sleep. This is not a cute story. I mean, it's full of God's promises and the rain. Okay, yes, but all the animals in the world died, except for those in the ark. I mean, some of you, you weep when you see a squirrel get run over. I mean, every animal in the world, except those in the ark, were, were, were wiped out. Every person in the world, except for Noah and his family, killed violently, drowning death. The flood is this window into God's inflexible commitment to His justice and holiness, His standard doesn't change. It doesn't bend. It doesn't adjust to us. It's not relative to the morality of our culture. It's inflexible. All wrongdoing must be punished. That's what it tells us. Then there's this third example Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Now, this, this event is virtually synonymous with judgment. In our day and, in, and even in Peter's day, both cities became engulfed in this life of unbounded hedonism with no thought of God. And both became literally engulfed in, in God's fiery judgment. And so the, their, their self-assured security of their lives, their, their sensual pleasures, they offer no protection whatsoever from divine wrath. So the, the bottom line in this, in this strand of Peter's argument here in these verses is, is that considering what God has done in the past, God is able and He is committed to keeping the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Verse 9. That's the point. This is the dire warning for those who come in God's name but do not proclaim God's message. They will be punished. They will be destroyed. They will be judged and that judgment is imminent. Now woven through these words though, and I hope you didn't miss this, we have these wonderful words of encouragement and promise. This is maybe the frameable part of there's maybe a phrase that's framable from chapter 2. There are these graphic reminders to us that the God of the Bible, He is indeed a God of wrath, but in His wrath, as Habakkuk says, He remembers mercy. God preserved His people in the midst of a corrupt culture. In Noah's day, in Lot's day, God will preserve you too. That's the encouragement to these first readers. That's the encouragement to us. Look at it again in verse five. God, God preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Verse seven and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials down in verse nine. And so now we now if you know anything about those stories, we may question um, Peter's assessment of Noah and Lot particularly Lot. Righteous is not the first adjective that comes to mind when I think of Lot. Um, th- the focus is not the righteousness of these men. It is the mercy of God. That's this point. These are not biblical heroes. They're biblical characters. The greatness in, of these stories is not their mor- moral character. It's the, it's the mercy of and grace of God, the shining hero in all of these stories, in every story of the Bible, it's God Himself. And so these men, th- what Peter's saying is, he's not, the encouragement to these believers that he's writing to, the encouragement is not, man, don't, remember, don't forget about these great heroes of the Old Testament who, who clawed their way out of their sinful cultures. No. They were rescued by God. God plucked them out. They were preserved by God's grace and His grace alone. And this is, the, this is what gives these, these first readers and gives us confidence and encouragement and assurance today. God will rescue and preserve us even when we are surrounded by wicked, false teachers and the culture that's, that's decaying around us. He, he, and, 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 and we will not be destroyed with them. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Verse 9. There's just double edge of help to believers in what the Apostle says here. Clearly, he wants to comfort and strengthen and encourage Christians who are going through severe trials and hardships. And he's reminding them and us, that the suffering Christian, that just as God proved himself to be utterly reliable, utterly faithful to those who trust in him in the past, so will he do for you. And he will trust You can trust him today. But he's also encouraging believers by helping them remember the justice of God. The believers in these churches were not, they were not told to celebrate the judgment of the ungodly. That's not what this passage is about. But they are told to remember the justice of God. That was to help them. The angels, they didn't get away with it. Those in Noah's Day, they didn't get away with it. The citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, they didn't get away with it. These opponents in these churches who claimed authority <coughs> without, without being submitted to King Jesus, they're not going to get away with it either. Yeah, that's an encouragement to these Christians. Judgment will come. It always has. It always will. But they, the believers, will not be destroyed. Not because of their, quote, righteousness, but because they are clothed in the righteousness of another. We see this back in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Yeah, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what keeps us from being destroyed. Because listen, brothers and sisters, we could easily be, and we deserve to be, examples of judgment too. We could put my name right in there with those who have been wiped out, who could have been wiped out, destroyed, and justly so. But we're not. And the difference between us and those in Noah's day, the difference between us and those in Sodom and Gomorrah is not that we are better than they were. We have been spared the wrath and judgment of God, not because we made ourselves so sparable, but because someone else was not spared in our place. Not, but, he, but He was condemned in our place. Romans 8.32 says who that someone else is. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That's, that's the essence of the Gospel message. God's love and justice are displayed at the cross. God's, God's justice demands death. God's love demands mercy. And, and, and the cross embodies both perfectly. They meet and kiss at the cross. We sing that hymn. Justice went to the Son. Justice and death went to the Son. Love and mercy have come to us. Not because we're better, but it's His mercy. No, Listen, no sin is ignored. All sins are dealt with in one of two ways. Either through the death of Christ who bore our sins on the cross or through eternal punishment and separation from God. All sins will be dealt with. We bear them or He bears them for us. There's this universal reality across all creatures, all cultures. Romans 3.23, the students have been here on Sunday mornings for all of sin falls short of the glory of God. We we have all fallen short. We are are all sinners. Not just we're sinners. We talked about this week. Eric and I were. We are sinners. But there, there is hope within that reality of our fallenness. Romans 3 goes on, For, But we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be, listen, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, the missing piece, the unanswered question in the story of Noah and Lot is really this. When you Put it in its larger biblical category, what about Noah's sins? what about lot's sins? They didn't deserve to be spared who who will be punished for their sins God 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 would pass over their sins temporarily so that their sins could Could be lumped together with with this one enormous burden of sin and imperfection that would be placed upon the shoulders of the perfect Son of God, never to be carried again. I mean, thousands and thousands of lambs would be slaughtered until the Lamb of God would come and take away the sins of the world. And that Lamb has come, and He came in the con- wider context to bring us into His eternal kingdom to, that we could be forgiven and we could be free. Listen, have you been justified by His grace as a gift? Do you know this? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior from sin and from God's wrath? Or are, are you still going to face it? You can, you can be free from that threat today, if you've not trusted in Jesus. You can today. You can bow your head now, call out to God and say, I am guilty. I am, I am, I am an, uh, undone. I am a sinner. I have nothing good in me. I need, I need what, what I cannot provide for myself. I need what Christ has given for me. His death in my place. His righteousness in the place of my sin. And you can call out to him and trust him today. I beg that you would. Talk with one of us if you've got questions. But listen, we go on and just we I need to finish up here. You see this theme of destruction continuing on. They're they're like verse twelve, they're like irrational animals, creatures of anything, born to be caught and destroyed. They will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage of their for their wrongdoing. So they're gonna reap what they sow. Verse 17, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Now, I have no time left. And this is not by design. And so I know some of you are going to have questions. And I'm happy to, to, to field those. I'll, I'll try to just fold these in next week. The, these verses, closing verses. There are some awkward questions that are raised here in the last verses. I don't want to skip over them. So we'll just pick them up uh, next week. I just the, the big thought I want you to see is in what Peter is saying here. God will rescue God will rescue and preserve all believers. That's a, he will hold us fast. There's this wonderful assurance in here. Um, you, you won't be overlooked. You won't be accidentally swept up into the judgment of a future wrath. Look back at chapter 1, verses 1, and following there, and just let your heart take be at rest in, in those promises. But listen, God will judge and punish unbelievers. And severely, those who are false teachers, false prophets—you um, can't escape that either. So we have this unframeable passage. <laughs> my my application is not go out and frame a verse from here. That's not it at all. But our response should be one of praise and prayer. We 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 praise God for His great mercy towards us in Christ, and we pray for those who don't know Christ. We pray for those. We pray for one another. In that chapter 3 verse 17 sort of way the, the, the Lord would help us to be stable in, in Christ and our faith in Christ, our confidence in Him But let me infuse just a little bit of gospel, uh, another injection of gospel hope here at the end of this sermon, we're, we're not to be proud finger pointers at false teachers, that's not that's not how we should walk away like you know, that, those losers that's not it, we're to be humble thanksgivers. Titus 3, verses 3 to 7. Listen to this. For we ourselves, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God and our Savior appeared, He saved us. We didn't crawl out of that condition. He snatched us out of that condition. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. There's no room for some kind of holier than now type of thinking when it when it comes to this. Christ is our righteousness, not our doctrinal IQ, not our niceness, not our morality, not our uh, you know status in the community, or just kind of general good temper. That's not it. it. It is Christ who credits us with having the righteousness that we could never arrive at on our own, and we have this then this hope of glory. And this is where this is where. Peter's going to pivot here into chapter 3 and he's going to have us looking forward to this future hope of Christ's return. And it, it is a glorious prospect for us. It, is, it, is, it ensures the destruction of the wicked, though they can be saved from that. It's not, it's not fatalistic. They can, they can be saved just as we all once were in that condition. But this is, this is a, a, a warning but it's also great comfort for us. Christ, Christ is coming back. This future hope. Let's let's pray and then sing, Father. We we realize that we, we can read these these passages like Second Peter two and the Book of Jude and other warning passages that speak of false teachers and it can seem sort of remote and and we haven't taken much time to uh, you know we're not calling out people and. Give listing names and that kind of thing, and we don't want to do that. That's not the point. That's not what Peter's even doing here. Um, but but we, we and we can kind of it, it can sound scary. But yes, false teachers, as we're going, false teachers are strong. Jesus, you are stronger, and and so help us not to be intimidated or threatened. That wasn't Peter's point. That's not why he wrote this to scare people. He wrote these things to encourage us and to help us, and to give us more deeply rooted confidence in Jesus Christ, and our identification with Him. And so I pray that would be the case for us. Um, we, We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.